Hi, I'm Alan Alexandrov, and I am the director of the Global Cemetery Project uh, website. We can be found at globalcemeteryproject.com. Today, uh, we are presenting the um, episode 24 uh, of the Now series, and this is a very interesting interview with uh, Peter Draper on the required reforms to the WTO and the new trade construction in Asia of the RCEP and the CPTPP. Lots of acronyms. So it's my pleasure today uh, to invite into the virtual studio Peter uh, Draper. I've known Peter for many years, first uh, in South Africa and now uh, in Australia. In fact, Peter is currently the executive director of the Institute of International Trade in the Faculty of the Professions at the University of Adelaide in Australia. He's also a member of the Board of Trustees of the International Chamber of Commerce's Research Foundation. He's a non-resident senior fellow of the Brussels-based European Center for International Political Economy. And he's an associated researcher at the German Development Institute so he has a very busy, busy uh, schedule, and it's my pleasure today to invite him into the studio. So with no further ado, let me introduce to you Peter Draper. So it's uh, a real pleasure to invite into the studio uh, Peter Draper. How are you, Peter? Very well, Alan. How are you? Oh, good, good. It's not nearly as um, uh, warm as I suspect you are, but where I am. But that's okay. In the virtual world, it really doesn't matter. So let let's let's begin here. Um, as you are obviously aware, uh, a new director general has been just appointed and and seated at the at the World Trade Organization. The knock on her is, of course, that she doesn't know a great deal about trade. I mean, she has a quite a huge resume, including Minister of Finance for Nigeria, co-chair of the Global Commission on the Economy and Climate. She chaired uh, the board of Gavi, which is, of course, the, uh, uh, the Vaccine Alliance and also the African Risk Capacity Arc, worked many years at the World Bank. But the question is, you know, does her lack of immediate kind of trade experience prove to be a stumbling block for her? I don't think so, Alan. I think in some ways it's an asset um, because she gets to ask the naive questions. Uh, and then by force of character, because she is a very forceful and substantive character, she can really question conventional wisdoms, okay. and hopefully drive some change and some new thinking not just in the organization, but amongst the members. So to pick up on three of her background points that you mentioned, the Gavi, so the health mm -hmm. issue, uh, that's going to be a huge issue going forward in the WTO. That's directly relevant. And this goes to the tra trade and agenda. So trade covers so many terrains, health now being one of them. She's got significant equities in that space combined with her knowledge of development. 
uh, her African credentials. Now, in the broader context of the WTO and its negotiation cycles, the Africa Group is a very important constituency, not least because it has the power to block. Uh, Now, if she can question some of the assumptions behind that blocking majority, then that's a good thing. Yeah, and similarly, her knowledge of economic development, I would argue, is is a strong asset and the role that trade plays in that development process. So -hmm. overall, I'm I'm very positive, and I think she's a a strong, driven, charismatic character. Uh, And she's very well connected politically in in Washington, in Europe, in Africa, in a number of key capitals based on her World Bank experience. So I think the the WTO has done well here. It's a very good appointment, and I'm looking forward to seeing what new energy she can inject, subject to the limitations of a DG in the WTO. In the WTO. I'd like to explore that a little bit. Uh, uh, So let's – I noticed that the question is – the big question is can she – and I should pronounce her name, Ngozi Okonjo Ewela, right? Yeah. Um, so um, I, I take it that, um, uh, you know, now she has to tackle and hopefully restore some of the effectiveness of the WTO, um, which has suffered a fair bit in the last while. I noticed in a report that one of your colleagues uh, provided an Adelaide report, you, you, he noted three major problems at the WTO. Uh, the dispute settlement mechanism, the WTO's lack of the right of initiative, um, and the principle of full consensus decision-making. And maybe we can look at each three, because these are significant impairment uh, for WTO action. First, uh, the issues around the dispute settlement mechanism, which seem to be highly uh, contentious. Uh, Well, so on the dispute settlement mechanism, the core issue through the there is longstanding US concerns about the way the appellate body has functioned. I think we probably don't have time to get into all the minutiae. Right. But what I would observe is that the Trump administration had taken that to a particular level by imposing effectively a block on new appointments uh, and thereby freezing the body. What we've seen in the latest EU uh, policy paper on trade mm-hmm. is an olive branch being thrown the US way, effectively the EU saying, well, the US has a point, we need to reconsider this and let's talk. Now, one of the core concerns that the Trump administration uh, and Mr. Lighthizer particularly had with the EU was he regarded them as part of the problem. Now, here's the EU throwing out an olive branch to a new administration that is very multilateralist in its orientation. Mm -hmm. So there's an interesting space to explore something new, I think. Uh, Quite what that means we will see over the coming weeks and months. And a lot depends on when the Biden administration decides to re-engage with the WTO, which in turn depends on when the USTR is appointed, but hopefully that will be any day. My understanding is it's probably early next week that she'll that she'll be appointed. So that will give her then, you know, the running room she needs. But I let's just go a little bit further here. I take it that the Amer- notwithstanding that the United States has won most of the cases, many of the cases that it's brought to the WTO, which of course immediately raises for me what 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 what's the problem here? 
I take it that uh, many of the folk view uh, the decision-making structure, particularly of the appellate body, which is the appeals process uh, within the WTO, as uh, creating law, uh, that, that they're, they're making it up. But of course, that's always a, a hit on uh, any, in quote, judiciary-like body. So um, I, it's a little hard to understand exactly what the American concern is. Well, I think the underlying concern is that WTO law is the product of long, tortuous negotiations. And so there's a very okay. delicate balance of concessions and obligations. Okay. Uh, if a bunch of uh, unelected, in a sense, uh, quasi-jurists, because I think the U.S. does not accept that the appellate body members are judges, per se, and that's an interesting question, whether or not they accept that point. I see. Um, so if they don't accept that point, and that's my understanding, then why are these people making new laws? And not only that, but effectively setting precedents. So the issue of precedence is another matter. So overinterpretation, um, going beyond the facts presented by panels is another matter related to the overinterpretation issue uh, and effectively leading to the creation of new rights and obligations or changing the balance of existing rights and obligations. And then the US has lost a couple of cases that they really don't like, uh, particularly related to anti-dumping, mm -hmm. also related to with the definition of state-owned enterprises. And this relates to the, the increasing problems with China, obviously, and it's not just a US problem. Right. Um, so, so there's quite a few things that the US has been storing up, even though, as you said, they've won most of their cases. Yeah. Okay. So that that's a huge issue, and uh, although, I, as you're well aware, of course, the blockage of the Trump administration didn't start with the Trump administration no. because the Obama administration refused to appoint as well. Um, uh, yeah, that's exactly right. So these are longstanding US concerns. The Trump administration chose to pursue them in a particular way. In a particular way. So I, I take it that the American position, at least as a starting point, is that every decision that's reached is sui generis and it offers exactly. no extended uh, interpretation to, in other words, uh, an appellate body can't say, well, we decided blah, blah, blah uh, a year ago in this case. You can't, the position of the United States is that, no, no, no. Uh, you, you take a look at the facts here and you make a decision. Take a look at the facts as presented. By Granted, yes. You're looking for new facts. Yeah. Okay. All right. So that's number one. Number two, lack of the right of initiative. And our good friend Alan Beatty from the FT today pointed, pointed out that in all these years since the initiation of the WTO after the uh, ex, you know extend beyond the GATT, uh, have essentially one multilateral agreement has been reached over those many years. Uh, and um, it was a minor uh, uh, agreement on trade facilitation. Um, it has uh, ongoing at this point, uh, uh, the fishery subsidies, which was raised as a possibility for resolution at the upcoming November, December uh, ministerial. Although I talked to some good folks in in the WTO just short uh, a while ago and they didn't think that you know resolving fisheries subsidies was in any way 
a real a serious prospect um, that there are uh, plurilateral uh, plurilaterals among smaller groups of countries over a variety of issues. Um, and I take it that, that probably includes the so-called joint statement initiatives that have been undertaken in, in light of the frustration of trying to get um, any, any advancement. And, and a few others. So the, so the question is, um, um, where do we go with all this? Both the ability of the WTO to initiate, uh, as a secretariat, to initiate um, uh, issues and, and um, uh, a, a, a advancement of WTO itself. And then, of course, uh, we'll come to in a second this whole consensus question, which makes it even more complicated and leads to the result. But, I mean, is there any prospect of resolving uh, the, the questions of the secretariat itself having capacity uh, to uh, seek to bring about um, improvement uh, of the WTO rules and law or... I think there's very little prospect of that. So my colleague who wrote had a particular view on it, so he was expressing it, and we like to present different points of view, sure, right? Sure, sure. It's, it's an interesting one because the, sec the Secretariat clearly has a lot of technical capacity. With Absolutely. more resources, you could have a lot more technical capacity. Mm -hmm. The problem is if the Secretariat were to get into the game of putting forward very technical initiatives, mm -hmm. inevitably they would be politicized in the Geneva atmosphere. Okay. And so the, that points to where the where core underlying problem is, which is partly rooted in the geopolitics. The Americans and the Chinese just can't agree on anything, mm -hmm. um, but also just in the very disparate interests that are on display all the time in Geneva and the positioning that goes with that. And the organization fundamentally operates on a mercantilist calculus, and we have to be clear about that. So reciprocity is the name of the game. If I make a concession, you must give me something. In something return. in return. Okay. Exactly. So now if you know, a secretariat puts forward a sensible economically-based proposition, how does that play out in terms of that mercantilist calculus? It would get torn apart probably, which is why Pascal Ami... <laughs> when he was director general, described the organization as medieval, if you remember mm -hmm. that term that he used. Mm -hmm. um, but also everyone knows in Geneva that it's a member-driven organization and has to be, which then brings us to the joint statement initiatives as probably the best way to resolve these impasses, within which the Secretariat has a key role to play because what it is doing already is putting forward technical statements, if you like. So if you were to go this way, these would be the implications. If you go that way, these are the implications. So they're helping to guide the negotiators without necessarily initiating. Uh, I see. I see. Yeah. Okay. And the, and the final, which of course goes to this uh, member-driven organization, is this additional principle of full consensus decision-making. Hmm. And yes. I take it there's very little interest, I take it, on the parts of some to make a change in that. Uh, well, there's certainly plenty of countries now signing up for the joint statement initiatives, including developing countries and including okay. recently some African countries. Really? Um, 
Okay. Uh, previously, I mentioned that the Africa Group tends to operate as a block, so you know, nearly 50 countries, that's a big block in the WTO, they, they can very quickly block consensus. But now, if you've got joint statement initiatives popping up, it, bypassing in effect that Africa veto, it's not only Africans that veto, India is probably the arch exponent of this, by the way, in Dorelia, um, then it creates a new dynamic. The problem with the joint statement initiatives, and India and South Africa have recently raised this in a paper that they've thrown into the General Council, which has really set the cat amongst the pigeons, is that precisely they bypass the consensus. Uh, and that is making members like India, South Africa, I guess the Africa group as well, and I'm less clear on that, uncomfortable because their issues now are taken off the table. Mm. So, for example, there is no joint statement initiative on reforming agricultural subsidies, which right. is a long-standing concern of Ken's group members and a range of others uh, because it's just too difficult to do outside of the multilateral context. So what tends to happen is that the developed countries primarily who initiate joint statement initiatives pick the issues they're most interested in, such mm -hmm. as digital trade, um, etc. So it's, it's challenging. And I think ultimately, ultimately what we have to think about is stitching together these joint statement initiatives into a kind of a mini package, and let me not call it the Doha round because that failed dismally, but a plurilateral of plurilaterals, if you like, mm -hmm. maybe that's an architecture option that could work going forward. So you see the, the potential, at least, of trade-offs, which is, of course, the underpinning, it seems to me, from what you've just said, of the WTO itself. It's reciprocal. Okay, so I don't like this uh, joint statement, but I do like that joint statement, so I'll, I'll trade it. And I take it too that in the cre uh, in the negotiations of the WTO itself, the single undertaking has now become a huge impediment. Uh, that I don't think it. I may be wrong. I was there, you know, in the, those early days. I don't think it was presumed that the single undertaking would become the, the rule. You know, nothing's decided till everything's decided um, at the. At, at the at the early stage of the WTO, maybe I'm wrong there. Maybe you can enlighten me on it. Yeah, so the single undertaking was a very important device for bringing the Uruguay round to a successful solution, right? Um, and so at the start of the Doha round, it was thought because it worked in the Uruguay round, we should apply it in the Doha round I too. Yeah, you know, the logic is there. So you want to reform agriculture, you've got to reform the services. For example, so okay. put the two together, nothing's agreed until everything's agreed, and then you add on other bits, bits and pieces as you proceed. Uh, but that's gone. It failed. Uh, it failed basically in 2008. That's when the Doha round broke down irretrievably, in my view. Mm -hmm. And so we have to go a new route, and that route is the Joint Statement Initiative. So it's plurilateral. So that's the name of the game now. Okay. And we'll see whether that provides a route then to, and we'll see how she uh, can uh, hopefully use the, the, the plurilaterals as, in a way to try to achieve some advancement, because clearly everybody and their brother seems to agree uh, that there really needs to be some major overhaul of the institution if it's to become uh, effective. Uh, well, that's, exactly, that's exactly right. And so you, 
Going back to the fisheries subsidies issue, okay. <laughs> I would say lateral negotiations. Everybody's involved in that. If that cannot be solved, I, I think this is a litmus test for the organization, frankly, because it speaks to the SDGs that you mentioned earlier. It's mm-hmm. an, clearly a very important environmental issue. They're much bigger environmental issues that are being stored up. The WTO has to come up with a solution to this problem. But viewed on its own merits, some countries are going to have to give more than others outside of the context of a single undertaking. So the balance of concessions is probably not enough in its own right. Mm -hmm. Maybe it needs to be linked to other issues. So I get back to my idea of this plurilateral or plurilateral. Okay. Let's switch focus now. Uh, There's there's the big international institution, which... You know, the I.O. It doesn't look very healthy, but there you got it. Now, I wanted to kind of take a, a look from your perspective at at kind of the um, uh, the Asia-Pacific format. I mean, we've seen the conclusion recently of the RCEP, the um, Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, 15 countries, um, big trade agreement, not, you know, not deep, but certainly an advancement. Particularly the uh, single the single rule on uh, on uh, manufacturing that they they've brought into play right um, uh, and there is also of course the CPTPP uh, the Comprehensive and Progressive Agreement for Trans-Pacific Partnership that's another eleven countries uh, many of it's Asia Pacific again uh, be, uh, so. Um, uh, you know, the question is, uh, what do you think? Uh, I mean, where does Australia, I mean, does it see these as really um, effective instruments in, move, in, you know, bringing about greater regional trade? And what does one say about the fact that, you know, China's in one, which is the RCEP, but it's not in um, the, the CPTPP, and the United States is in neither of these agreements? Yeah, so... Th- This region has its noodle bowl. So if looked at from an Australian perspective, Australia has a bilateral trade agreement with China. Yes, It's now in the RCEP, as is China, but that's essentially a slight extension of uh, bilateral trade agreement. So it's not really new in that context. China not being in the CPTPP right now suits Australia and a number of other countries because... Rules under the CPTPP arrangement, for instance, on the governance of state-owned enterprises, mm-hmm. are much stronger uh, under CPTPP. So, if China were to come in, uh, it, it would have to abide by those rules, and there's very little prospect of that happening. Um, so, that creates an interesting accession scenario to CPTPP because China has expressed interest from mm-hmm. she himself. Yes. CPTPP. In terms of the the trade content, again, of of RCEP, switching back to that ASEAN-centred regional trade agreement, it's important to understand it is an ASEAN-centred agreement, which means it operates according to the ASEAN way, which is generally a much lower bar because these are are developing countries with with the significant exception of Singapore. Um, So... That's what's at the heart of the the RCEP. It's ASEAN plus the five others. Right. 
Australia already has a trade agreement with ASEAN. So that's called the ANSFATOM, Australia, ASEAN, New Zealand Free Trade Agreement. So again, noodle bowl in, in operation. Mm-hmm. Probably the most important strategic development within the RCEP is the fact that China, Japan, and Korea now are participating in the same regional trade arrangement. So Northeast Asia is finally kind of embedded within a larger trade arrangement in Asia. Yes, with a very or relatively low bar in terms right. of market right. access rules, right. etc. Yeah, yeah. But the I mean, since so, India, um, because yeah. as you, well, they were supposed about. to be in, <laughs> you know, and they negotiated for a good part of the period in which it was being negotiated, and only pulled out. I take it eighteen months, I, thereabouts, prior yes. to the actual conclusion of the. Uh, uh, of that, and I know Japan was quite keen to keep India in uh, RCEP and worked very hard, although ultimately unsuccessful in bringing um, India back into the into the fold here. I think everyone was keen to keep India. Is that right? Not, okay, not yeah. least the ASEANs, as the Australians said. Mm-hmm. Um, but India pulled out primarily because of concerns over China. Um, and particularly its bilateral trade deficit with China. This sounds very Trumpian, but the Indian mindset, I think, is deeply a cantalist. And then, of course, there are the geopolitical concerns that India has vis-a-vis China as as well, which I would argue is a reason to get into RCEP, by the way, not least to balance China. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, but obviously they fear... Well, so they've declared that they were worried that you know, the trade balance with China would become even more lopsided in terms of uh, the trade arrangement. So you have this, you know, kind of combination geopolitics, geo uh, or uh, trade policy that seems to interweave in these agreements. And that raises the question, the United States is in neither of these agreements at the moment. So what's kind of Australia's view of that uh, in terms of... Australia would very much like the US to rejoin CPTPP. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's that's absolutely clear. Mm-hmm. Um, this, you know, there's some possibility that the US might, but I think it'll be a while before the US re-engages with that. There's a lot of domestic stuff to, to sort out in the okay. US first. Yes. Biden yeah. made that very clear. But strategically, it's the sensible move for the US to make. And I think US uh, trade policy as well as strategic thinkers know that. I taking the country with them. Yeah. And, and has Australia abandoned the kind of bigger ASEAN Pacific, or sorry, uh, the, uh, yeah, the Asia Pacific framing that it really was the prime promoter of uh, with respect to APEC? Uh, in in 2008, and then of course I was involved. I'm not sure if you got involved in in um, uh, Kevin Rudd's uh, Asia Pacific Community Failed Initiative, uh, but nevertheless, uh, trying to add that geopolitical dimension directly uh, to um, I think APEC. I mean, is Australia no longer interested in kind of that framing? No, deeply interested, and Australia is still pursuing some initiatives in the APEC context. Mm-hmm. But if one looks at the thrust of Australian strategic policy and th- thinks about the trade agenda within that, it's all about the Indo-Pacific. 
I see. Uh, and in that context, RCEP as a trade arrangement makes a lot of sense, but it needs India in. It absolutely needs India. I see. Um, and within the Indo-Pacific context, APEC is an important building block. But it's very unlikely APEC is going to result in an overarching free trade agreement, including all parties. I see. Probably in my lifetime. <laughs> what APEC can do is initiate interesting sectoral initiatives, such as, for instance, on environmental goods and services. Mm-hmm. Uh, under the New Zealand leadership now of, of APEC, they're thinking about, for instance, trade in renewable energy products as a possible APEC initiative. Initiative. Then, yeah, and then taking that into the WTO context where, you know, who knows what will happen, but maybe it finds a landing zone. Yeah. Well, as you say, it's, it's, it's quite the noodle bowl of uh, agreements going on in uh, the Asia-Pacific uh, Asia context or the Indo-Pacific context of taking another kind of framing. Finally, I wanted to address with you, uh, before you have to leave, the, the question of, of you know, Australia's relationship with China, which seems to be really in the scupper these days what's what's that all about what what's i mean i knew that the chinese were not happy with the uh with australia uh initiating or calling for um, an initiative with respect to the to the pandemic i know they were angry but it, i presume it goes beyond that of course i think fundamentally it's about australia's military alliance with the u.s I see. Um, and under the Morrison administration, I think, in Australia, the that delicate balancing act between China as our major trading partner, the US as our security partner, mm-hmm. has very clearly swayed towards the security side. And that's, you can trace that back in a number of ways, but I think fundamentally the reason Australia has shifted, uh, and it has shifted, is because of what China is doing in the South China Sea, especially, but not only the South China Sea. So it's that remilitarization drive, the re-centralization of control under Xi Jinping and in the person of Xi Jinping, so that the domestic political developments in China, the wolf warrior diplomacy, how that's playing out in the region vis-a-vis India, for instance, Etc. One can continue, and the Australian government's been watching these developments with growing alarm. Mm-hmm. And it's not just the government. There's a widespread feeling, I think, in Australian society that we don't know what we're dealing with here in the rise of Xi Jinping's China. So actually, we need to tighten that security relationship with the United States. Uh, but under President Trump, can the United States be trusted? to stay the course in the region is another underlying important security question. So the the medium-term course of this relationship, I think, has to be watched very closely. Uh, It's it's fairly fluid, I would would suggest. Mm -hmm. Is there any prospect of Australia and China, you know, lowering the temperature up uh, and, and resolving at least some of the trade issues that seem to have, you know, come about the tariffs and so forth. 
You know, it's interesting that you say, can Australia and China do anything? Uh, the Australian side has been reaching out to their Chinese counterparts consistently for the last year, very publicly. Mm-hmm. And this was trying to place calls, for instance, Morrison trying to get meetings and so on. They go literally unanswered. They go ignored. What we get from the Chinese side is a statement of 14 points, which is effectively 14 demands, saying this this is what Australia must do. And what that includes things is like muzzle your press, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And that goes down very badly in the Australian context for obvious reasons, because Australians are saying, well, they're threatening our democracy. So I I don't see things changing under the current context. I'm, I'm not sure there's much more Australia could do besides perhaps reframing some languages, pursuing a more diplomatic framing of language. Mm-hmm. But beyond that, the strategic die, I think, is largely cast. Yeah. So I, I think unless China makes some diplomatic moves, you don't see any real prospect then of, of kind of resolving some of these irritants and trade issues. You see, Canada has its own problems with China, right? But Absolutely. The way I, the way I see this is it's not only Australia. Soon it's going to be the UK in a similar position. Those tensions are already there. Mm-hmm. Already the Europeans don't quite know how to respond. And you look at their positioning recently, China's a friend, but it's also a strategic competitor. So they've realized this game and they're upping their defenses. Um, and the Chinese system is set up to punish anybody, anybody <laughs> who dares to transgress red light lines that, that they regard as red lines. So, and I think it's inevitable that democracies in one way or another are going to transgress those, those red lines because the systems are just so different. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm not particularly optimistic about this. I think China is set on a course that's antithetical in many ways to Western values. And then the key trade-off becomes how much market access are we gaining if we just muzzle ourselves and bow a little lower <laughs> to the Chinese state? That's the trade-off. But, I mean, at least, I mean, at least from the European side, they did at least conclude, um, lots of questions around it, but they did at least conclude a comprehensive investment agreement uh, just before the end of the year. So, that seems to have made some advancement in terms of EU-China relations. Yeah, so maybe we need to go back to an old distinction in international relations between the high politics and the low politics, right? So the Comprehensive Investment Agreement, or Agreement on Investment, the CAR, yep. at one level is about the high politics, but fundamentally it's a low politics agreement. It's about not it's about market access. Mm-hmm. I think that agreement is actually good for Europe if it passes, uh, if it passes the European Parliament. And that will be a very interesting test because all, all of these values issues will come into play and they're already in, in play. So it may fail, the ratification. It, it may, test. yes. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So that's the choice every country faces. Sell more German cars in the European case versus trade <laughs> some of our, our values fundamentally. Okay, okay. Well, uh, I want to thank you, Peter, for uh, taking time uh, today to uh, join me in talking about uh, these um, really interesting issues, uh, and in part from an Australian perspective. It's uh, very helpful, and I appreciate your taking that time. Well, thanks very much, Alan. It was good to talk again.